As you came in tonight, hopefully you got not only a handout, but hopefully you also got the Christmas schedule. That's just a straight print off of the blog. It's not super formatted for a handout, but it's what's on the church website. Just wanted you to have a copy of that. So even though tonight's the last night of the attribute study, we have two more Wednesday nights together before Christmas break. This upcoming next Wednesday, a week from tonight, is a Gingerbread House Fellowship where we've, they're already pre-built. We get to decorate them and listen to Christmas music. It's one of the, our favorite fellowships of the year. Hope you'll be back for that. You can do it yourself with a group of friends, as a couple, as a family. There's lots of ways to do it, but it's a good time to fellowship. And the following week, we're going to do a service project. We're going to make um, cards for mess schools in Kenya. So we make homemade Christmas cards to send to the kids at the orphanage and the Christian school there. And then we will watch a Charlie Brown Christmas on a infl- big inflatable screen in the gym while we have hot chocolate and popcorn. So those are the next two Wednesday nights. But this brings us tonight to the end of our study on the attributes of God. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into our discussion for tonight. Father, we're so thankful for these weeks that we've had to journey together and to think about you and your greatness and who you are. And I pray tonight as we come to this kind of summary week of all of it, that you would just open our eyes to the wonder of who you are. God, that we would not just take for granted that we get to know you, but we just be in awe of the fact that you've revealed yourself to us, you've shown yourself to us, and I pray that you would deepen our love for you as we think about your greatness tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we come to what is called a summary attribute, an attribute that describes pretty much everything that we have seen tonight, and that you see there, week 15, God is majestic and glorious. Now, these are two attributes, but they're very closely related, and so we're going to treat them together, and it's a fitting one to end on tonight because it is a summary attribute of God. Now, to help us get us thinking about it, I want to start with a quote from the reformer Martin Luther. It makes me stop and think. He says, your thoughts of God are too human. And that's just a great reminder because so often for us, the danger is we can try to bring God down to our level. We can try to make God fit into our paradigms of how we would do things. And no, our thoughts of God are often far too human. Our thoughts of God are often not great enough. And that's why I love studying the attributes of God because it takes us to a deeper level of understanding God's revelation of who he is to take us to where he has told us who he himself is. So as we think about him being majestic and glorious tonight, let's start with Psalm 72. Verse 19, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. That is a great prayer for us to pray. Blessed be his glorious name. This should be our desire. But what do we mean by that? We're going to unpack that tonight. And then Psalm 145.5, this is what I want us to do tonight. But this is what I want us to be doing, all of us, each day. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Friends, we are a distracted people and we need to slow down and take time to think about and meditate on God's greatness, particularly here, his glory and his majesty. So turn the page on your handout to page number two here. So we begin tonight, realize that this is a little bit different than the other attributes that we've studied. This is what's called a summary attribute of God. Summary attributes are descriptions of God and all of his perfection. These encompass all of his attributes. So when you read different authors and different books on attributes of God, There's four summary attributes that typically get mentioned, and different people mention different ones. But just so you're aware of what the summary attributes are, because we're not covering all of them, but just so you're aware, you see four on your handout here. The first is called perfection. Herman Bavinck says God's highest perfection is the sum and substance of all the attributes which has been discussed so far. God's the sum total of all excellencies, the one than whom no greater, higher, better can exist, either in thought or in reality. So you think about God's holiness and his independence and his unity, all those things we've talked about, God is perfect in all of them. So perfection is an attribute that can summarize all of his attributes. Some theologians describe, summarize, or summarize all of God's attributes with the word blessedness. And they say God's blessedness means that God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his character. 
And so blessedness is a word that can be used to summarize all of God, that God is pleased with who he is because he's perfect in all things. And so we would say that God is blessed in that way. But our focus tonight are the attributes, summary attributes called majesty and glory. And they're hard to separate, so we're going to treat them together. So what do we mean generally by majesty and glory? So when, have you, when you think of the word majesty, where have you typically heard it used? I think of two things, and you see the pictures there. You think of it in terms of kings and queens, right? Her majesty, his majesty, or you hear it in terms of sometimes beautiful things in nature. So that right there, that picture is one of my favorite places in Alabama. Some of you guys have been there. That's McDill Point up along the Penhody Trail at Chihaw, and that's an unfiltered sunset I got to see a few weeks back. And so you might say, wow, that sunset was majestic. So in English, when we say majesty, we're meaning something that's great, something that has impressive beauty or that has royal power. It's like with a king or a queen, you're recognizing the royalty of their position. With a sunset, you're recognizing the beauty and the stunningness of it. So we use majestic to mean great, beautiful, royal, powerful. All those can encompass that word majestic. But what about glory? Glory is a term we use a lot, but what do we mean by that? Glory literally in English would mean honor or excellent reputation. So glory in a sense is a recognition of greatness. In a sense, it's a recognition of majesty. And we use this term, particularly in the sports world. Um, I was at Jordan-Hare Stadium last Saturday for the Iron Bowl, and I heard a lot of cheering on both sides of glorifying their team. I got to listen to the Auburn fans sitting around me cheering glory, glory to old Auburn and hearing all these chants of glorifying because they love their school. So we use the term glory to honor something in that way. Sometimes you use that in Wilts to describe nature. Look at that glorious sunset. Or look at that glorious mountain. We use it to try to capture something that's incredibly beautiful or majestic. So Let's kind of narrow that down, though. What about God? When we say God is majestic or God is glorious, what do we mean by that? Here's four attempts to try to define God's majesty and glory. Again, theologian Herman Bavink says, God's glory indicates the splendor and the brilliancy that is inseparably connected with all of God's virtues and with his self-revelation in nature and grace. So notice he described in terms of splendor or brilliance, but that's tied to his character, his virtue. So out of the overflow of his virtues, you have this brilliance around who God is and his revelation of himself. Thomas Watson says, quite simply, it's the sparkling <coughs> of the deity. I find that a fascinating way to describe it. We think about the brightness around God, the way Bavink was describing it, the splendor, the brilliance. Watson says it's the sparkling of the deity. Wayne Grudem, who's always one of my favorites, says, God's glory is the creative brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. It is very appropriate that God's revelation of himself should be accompanied by such splendor and brightness, for this glory of God is the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. And I have an underline there because I think that's one of the best definitions of majesty and glory, the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. And then Mark Jones, as perhaps maybe one of the best summaries of it, he says there are basically two ways that we can speak of God's glory, a term that denotes his divine splendor and the magnificence for which he is worthy of honor. First, God's essential glory represents the sum of his attributes, which together make him the God of glory. Second, there's a glory ascribed to God in terms of what his creatures bring to him. The latter glory has in view our praise, worship, obedience, and delight as we keep the name of the Lord holy in all that we do. So notice there's a glory that God is glorious, but then we as his people are to glorify him. And I like how Jones brings those together. So flip the page. Let's kind of see how, we, how this is revealed throughout scripture. As you heard me say week after week after week, these attributes are revealed to us. We don't reason them from Scripture. God makes clear to us, this is who I am. In His grace, He shows us His character, tells us His name, tells us His characteristics. And this is no different with majesty and glory. God reveals to us that He is majestic and that He 
is glorious. So here's several ways you see it in Scripture. First of all, majesty and glory are used to describe the light of God's presence, like we saw in so many of those definitions, this brilliance around God, this light around God. <coughs> Excuse me. For example, Exodus 16.10, and this is in just the context here. This is when God's talking to his people. They're grumbling about not having food, so God's going to give them manna and he's going to give them quail, and this is God revealing what he's about to do. As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So there was like literally a brightness as God was coming to take care of his people. There was a brilliance and a brightness that his people could physically see as God is revealing himself and what he's going to do. Like how the psalmist describes in Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So here you have the greatness of God as character and the brilliance, the light that literally goes alongside it. Luke chapter 2, verse 9. This is fitting as we think about Christmas season coming up. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So literally there was a brilliance, a light around God's revelation. But perhaps my favorite of all these scriptures, I love this, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, as we look to our future, eternal future with God. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it a light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So in the new heavens and new earth, friends, we're not going to need the physical sun to give us light. The presence of God himself will have a literal brilliance around it that becomes all the light we need always to see. That's how glorious God is. The entire new heavens and new earth will be lit up by God himself and the glory surrounding him. So majesty and glory are used to describe the lights surrounding God's presence. Second of all here, majesty and glory are also used in the Bible as a title for God. Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10 and notice the repetition here. <clears throat> Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. That the, Here it is. The king of glory may come in. There's the first time. Who is the king of glory? Number two. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. That the, here it is. Third time. The king of glory may come, come in. Who is the number four? The king of glory. The Lord of hosts. He is the number five. The king of glory. So I don't know if your parents did this, but when I'm trying to help my kids understand something, I say it again and again and again, because I don't want them to miss it. And these verses, five times we're given the title of God as he is the king of glory. That he is all glorious and there's a, literally a brilliance around his presence. First Corinthians 2, 8, it's very similar. None of the rulers of this age understood this. Let's talk about what Christ was doing. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So here you have Christ himself being ascribed this title, the Lord of glory. Now notice how it's described in Hebrews 1, 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he said, now the right hand of the majesty on high. So you see the Father, you see the Son, all being attributed to glory, that God is fully glorious, it's the light around him, it's also one of his titles. But then third here, you see on this page, majesty and glory are used as descriptions of God himself. Psalm 145, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will Meditate. So now glory is being used not just of God himself, but the description of him, the glorious splendor of his majesty, or 2 Peter 1.16. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So these become descriptions of God himself. So they're, they're descriptions of the light around him, they're titles for God, they're descriptions of God's nature. And number four here, majesty and glory are used as descriptions of God's sovereignty, of his power, and of his 
greatness. So notice the connection here between glory, majesty, and his ruling over all things, his sovereignty over all things, his power to do whatever he wants to do. Yours, First Chronicles 29, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. So just pause there. Notice how glory and majesty are associated here with victory and power. This is God as a sovereign ruler who's glorious, who's majestic. He's the king over all. He's ruling. And so glory and majesty are part of that great power he has. For all those in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So glory and majesty are used to help us get a sense of how powerful God is. Job 37 here. And have you noticed throughout the study how often we can quote Job to see the attributes of God? It's fascinating how much of the attributes of God you find in the book of Job. But Job 37 here. This is Elihu speaking to Job. And this is what Elihu says. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. Not just with majesty, he's clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him, for he is great in power. Justice and abundance of righteousness he will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own counsel. So here we see this as a contrast to us. We are not glorious, but God is glorious, and he is clothed with awesome majesty. Later in Job 40 here, this is Elihu still speaking. He's challenging Job if he can match God's majesty, which of course Job nor Elihu can. Job 40, have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, clothe yourself with glory and splendor. The point is he can't. We can't be clothed in glory and splendor or majesty the way God is. He's so different than us. And in Psalm 93 here, Verse 1, 2, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. So notice the connection of his glory, his majesty, and his strength here. It's a reflection of his ability and power to rule. So in light of all these scriptures, let's look at some of the conclusions we make or might say are truths about God's majesty and glory. Number one, God is zealous for his glory. Isaiah 48 is such a great text on this. God says, for my own sake, for my own sake. And here's repetition. He doesn't want us to miss this. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So remember, I said this is a summary attribute. So as we walk through these conclusions about his majesty and glory, notice how this ties to so many other attributes we saw. Think back to the attribute of God's jealousy. Here's how we defined it that night. God's jealousy is not the sinful emotion of envy that characterizes human jealousy. It is God's righteous concern to protect the truth that he is the creator of the universe and that he alone, not gods of human invention, deserves human praise. So remember from a few weeks back, God is a jealous God and that means he is jealous for his glory. And that is a good thing because he's jealous for the only thing that is glorious, the only thing that is fully good and fully holy and fully pure and that is himself. And that's a good thing for us and for him as well. Second of all, <coughs> God has to reveal his glory for us to see it. Friends, we cannot discover God's glory. We will not find it on our own. The language of the Bible is so clear. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are blind. And unless God reveals himself, we have no hope. Look at how Mark Jones describes it. God, and thus also his glory, remains incomprehensible to us. He condescends to give us a little taste of his glory because he freely chooses in his glory to reveal himself to us, friends. The fact that we can even know God as an all-glorious God is only because God has condescended to show us a small glimpse of his great glory. Mark Jones continues, his majesty, his holiness, power, and knowledge are utterly beyond 
our comprehension. Now, that's a humbling truth for us. It's beyond our comprehension. But notice this. Far from causing despair, this truth should comfort us. We do not need a God we can manage, but one utterly beyond our ability to comprehend. So we're going to dig in on that quote more in our small groups tonight. But God is beyond our comprehension. His glory is beyond anything we can comprehend. You can spend the rest of your life studying every text in Scripture about the glory of God, sitting at McDill Point, looking out of the sunsets, reading Scripture every day, and still not be able to fully grasp the greatness of the glory of God. It's beyond our comprehension. But that doesn't give us despair. That really gives us comfort because we see how much greater God is than us. Remember that quote from the beginning, our thoughts are often too human? As God is revealing his glory to show us his greatness and how different he is than us. I love it when Moses asked this in Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So God gives us glimpses of his glory, but we only see a little bit of the greatness of it. Number three, realize in Scripture, revelations of God's glory often cause fear. Now, I've seen this before, but I include it again because in our culture, so often we see God as just the loving grandfather and there's no fear associated with his presence. We just kind of see God as someone who just wants us to get whatever we want. But when God reveals himself in Scripture, people fall on their faces in fear. Again, going back to Job here. This is Job now speaking back to his friends and correcting them and being, thinking they were so, because they were so hasty and thinking they could speak for God. He says, will not his majesty terrify you when the dread of him fall upon you? So majesty is tied to a fear because it shows the greatness of God. Isaiah 6, one of my favorite texts, I think is familiar to all of you on this. <coughs> Excuse me. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Now just try to imagine this. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So can you picture this scene here? And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is, here it is, full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe I'm here. God is so cool. No. What is his response? I said, woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we see more of God's glory, it humbles people. It brings them to their face here. Luke 2, 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with, not just fear, with great fear. So why does the revelation of God's glory bring fear? And I think the answer goes back to remember the unity of God, what we talked about that week. And there's one, one thing that Mark Jones said to bring it together. He says, we know that his majesty is his power, is his justice, is his dominion. So think about this. If, all, if God is fully all the attributes all the time, when you get a greater glimpse of the glory and greatness and majesty of God, you're also reminded of his holiness, his justice, his wrath, his jealousy, because it's the revelation fully of who he is. So Jones continues. We know that his majesty is his power, is his justice, is his dominion. The majestic God cannot dwell with or tolerate the proud. When his dominion over them means he can and will judge them. So when there's this, these glimpses of God's glory, people don't jump up and down with excitement going, wow, this is so cool. They fall on their face because they know they're in the presence of a holy judge, a righteous judge, the one who is jealous for his glory and his fame. So the unity of God helps us understand that his glory is tied to everything else about him. Number four, in terms of truths of God's glory, realize God's glory cannot increase 
or decrease. Now think back into the, one of the first weeks of the study. Remember the attribute of God's unchangeableness. The big word was his immutability, that God does not change. I gave you this quote from A.W. Pink then, but let me remind you. God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in his being, his attributes, or his determination. Therefore, God is compared to a rock, which remains immovable when the entire ocean surrounding it is continually in a fluctuating state. Because God has no beginning and no end, he can know no change. That means God is not more glorious today than he was before creation. He's not going to be more glorious 100 years from now. God is fully glorious all the time, always has been, always will. Nothing diminishes it, nothing increases it. He is always fully glorious. Psalm 105, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So God is always fully glorious all of the time. But number five, though, we are still called to glorify God, but it does not change his glory. Us glorifying God doesn't make God more glorious. Us failing to worship him like we should doesn't decrease his glory, but yet we're still called to glorify God. Again, tie this back into early in the semester. Remember the attribute of God's independence. We define that as God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we in the rest of creation can glorify him and can bring him joy. And so we do, God does not need anything from us, but yet we can bring glory to the all-glorious God by worshiping him. That's what Mark Jones says. When we glorify God, we add nothing to his essential glory, the glory he already possesses in himself. We glorify God only as we give him the honor due him in this world according to the way he has dictated in his word. This latter glory has in view our praise, worship, obedience, and delight as we keep the name of the Lord holy in all that we do. So God is always fully glorious. Nothing we do increases or decreases it, but yet we get the calling and the joy of praising him, obeying him, worshiping him, glorifying the all-glorious one. <coughs> Excuse me. Psalm 86. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Now, why will one day all the nations glorify God? Here's why. For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Te- and this is a great prayer for us. Teach me your way, O Lord that may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Friends, that is our calling for all eternity, is to glorify God for all eternity, worshiping and praising him, serving him, because he deserves it all. And so hence we have this command we're familiar with in 1 Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So turn the page there. That's the truth about God's glory. Now, how should this affect us? Again, like you've heard me say week after week, the attributes of God are not just a nice topic so we can go sit in a coffee shop and have a cup of coffee and debate the philosophy of these things. These are here to change us. God reveals this not for us just to be like, oh, that's nice. These truths are to shape and change our daily life. So how should the truth about God's majesty and God's glory affect us? I want to suggest several things here. Number one, it should lead us to seek God's grace to keep him first in our lives. There is nothing in our lives and no one who is as glorious and as majestic as God. There's no relationship we have that's glorious as God. There's no thing we can have physically that's as glorious as God. There's nothing that we can have as glorious as God. And God knows that and God wants us to know that. That means God will not settle for second place in our lives. Anything that we want more than God is an idol. It doesn't have to be a physical thing, but there can be lots of idols that we value more than we value God. And so if we think about his jealousy, if we think about the greatness of his glory, then we realize that we are called to put him first in our lives. Matthew 6, 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or in Matthew 22, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so God's will for us revealed all throughout Scripture is that we are to pursue by his grace him first in our lives. Anything we pursue more than him is an idol to us. Number two, this truth about God's glory should lead us to seek God's grace to grow in holiness. So again, think back to the truth of God's holiness attribute. Holiness is a sum of all moral excellency is found in him. He has absolute purity, unsullied even by the shadow of sin. So God is fully glorious. His glory is his holiness, is his righteousness, is everything. Glory just summarizes it all. And so if we understand how glorious God is, then we understand that's why we tremble in fear. He calls us to pursue holiness as well. Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I've shared this quote earlier in the semester, but I want to share it again from Timothy George. He said, in all genuine spiritual experience, these two are inseparably linked. A high sense of God's majesty and holiness and the apprehension of radical depravity and human sin. Friends, the more we understand the majesty of God, the more we understand how wicked and and rebellious our hearts are. The more we see the glory of God, the more we realize we are not good people, but we are very evil, very vile, very corrupt people. The glory of God contrasts with our experience, and that contrast is there to drive us to see God's grace to grow in holiness, not to stay put where we are. Number three, God's majesty and glory should lead us to reverence to all and to worship. Hebrews 12, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So these truths about God should be driving us to a place of going, He has opened my eyes to see Him. I now know the God who is all glorious. I want to know Him more. So it should drive us to awe and reverence and worship, not to complacency. Psalm 27:4. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Friends, what a great desire and prayer that should be for all of us. And so with that, there's a quick warning here for us before we look at this Grudem quote. If we study the attributes of God, and doesn't it all stir our hearts to want to worship him more and know him more? That's a warning sign for us what's going on in our hearts and souls. If we can think about the glory of God and we remain cold through it. Wayne Grudem says, the greatness of God's being, the perfection of all of his attributes is something that we can never fully comprehend, but before which we can only stand in awe and worship. And so that's what it drives us to, going, God is so great. I want to know him more. I want to worship him more. So turn the page here. How can we grow in our understanding of these things? Let's kind of wrap up with this tonight. Not only God's glory and majesty, this attribute is so vast to us, but all these attributes. How do we really grow in understanding of these things? Something that J.I. Packer once said that I found helpful. He said, we need to remove from our thoughts any idea of limits on God that would make him small. Because in all of our thinking, friends, there are things in our thoughts where we make God small. Where we bring God down to human levels and we think God can't do that or God won't do that. And we bring, stu- we bring God down to a human level. We need to remove from our thoughts any idea of limits on God that would make him small. So how do we do that? How do we get rid of these wrong thinking about God, this human thinking about God? You've heard me say this many times before, but this comes from things in the biblical counseling movement. You put off by putting on. The only way you're going to get rid of wrong thoughts is by replacing them with right thoughts. So if, I'm, I, can't, if I want to stop thinking about a pink elephant, 
I can't sit around going, I'm not going to think about a pink elephant. I'm not going to think about a pink elephant. Because the more you think, say you're not going to think about it, the more you think about it. Same thing. If you're not getting rid of thought, wrong thoughts of God, or God can't do that, or God doesn't care, whatever the lies are we believe, we're not going to do that by just thinking, I'm not going to do it. We replace them with something else. And so what do we put on instead? There it is. We study scripture to see God for who he really is. When we realize our thinking of God is too human, when we realize our thinking of God is too small, we replace that with putting on the truth of who God has revealed himself to be. And God has revealed himself to be a God of no limits. Now, we've seen this author our study. He has no limits of his knowledge, right? He's omniscient. He has no limits in his presence. He's omnipresence. He has no limits in his power. He's omnipotent. You know, we've seen this all over and over. God <coughs> has no limits of any type. And so if we want to have right thinking of God, we put off our limited view of God by studying the Scripture to see God for who He is. So for example, Psalm 139, let me just read this for us, but look at how much of the attributes of God we see here. See how vast and how limitless God is. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. That's just incredible. He knows our thoughts before we even think them. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. God knows what I'm going to say tomorrow morning. He knows what you're going to say later night. Like he knows everything. He has that, no limits at all. He says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as a day, for darkness is as but light to you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than sand. I awake and I am still with you. So one of the things that I, want, if you do, I don't know if you'll have time in your groups tonight, but if you do, I want you to look at that psalm and list how many attributes of God you find in that one psalm. And if you don't have time in your groups tonight, sometime this week, do that for Psalm 139 and Psalm 140 below. Read through those two texts and circle all the attributes of God. Here's his sovereignty. Here's his power. Here's his He's omnipresent. Just look through those two texts right there. <coughs> excuse me. And see God for who he really is. Just again, listen to Isaiah 40 and listen for the attributes of God here. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or, or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are his beast enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then would you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman cast in, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver chains. He is too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He says, how a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know, 
Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Guys, we just got to compare to grasshoppers. His inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their, stern, their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off. Like stubble, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his mind. Because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my, my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So sometime this week, friends, take those two texts and just look for every attribute you see in there. And there's a lot in there. But a second way to help turn our mind from human thoughts to thoughts of God is to read good books. Friends, we are a blessed people. We are in a time and age where there's printing press, where you've all been to school, where there's literacy. We have God has granted us scholars who faithfully study Scripture and articulate who God is and can take us deeper into understanding the Word of God. We have more access to study tools than any generation has ever had with all of our iPads and Kindles and all these devices we have. We can be studying more, and there's so much good stuff. So if you particularly want to go deeper on the attributes of God, here are some suggestions for you. And you've seen me quote from all of these this semester, and a lot of these are in the Resource Center. So my starting point, you've heard me talk about a lot, my favorite, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. You can do curls with this book also besides reading about the attributes of God. This is a, his chapters on the communicable and incommunicable attributes are the best I have found just about anywhere. If you want a more condensed version, they abridge this and, call, and it's called Bible Doctrine. It's a little bit more accessible because it's not quite as bulky. You can't do as many curls with it, but it's still a great book. So I recommend that one. It's a great starting point if you want to study the attributes of God. If you want an easier, not easier, but a a deep one, but it's pretty simple, this one, the attributes of God, A.W. Pink. A little bit more accessible. This one is so rich because Pink just, his starting point is the sovereignty of God and the glory of God and the bigness of God. And so this is a very Godward focused book on the attributes of God. It is one of my favors. There's a more modern one that I've really enjoyed. Um, I only found it about halfway through when I taught this the first time years ago. Mark Jones, God is. You've seen me quote him a good bit. This is a great one from Crossway, the people behind the ESV. God is a devotional guide to the attributes of God. This one is just rich for how each attribute of God applies to your daily life and shapes you. I really have really enjoyed that one. Um, A.W. Tozer is a classic on the attributes of God. His is two volumes. So volume one and volume two. Lots of chapters on the different attributes of God. He's probably got more list of more attributes than a lot of the others do. So it's a great resource as well from him. Then I've mentioned several t- in several things, short prayers. Rosemary Jensen from Bible Study Fellowship, praying the attributes of God. This one is super simple. She'll have like God is holy. She'll have scriptures for you to read. And she'll give you a model prayer, a model prayer of confession, a model prayer of thanksgiving to pray in light of the fact that God is holy. So this one doesn't really have teaching. It just has a ton of scriptures and it's got blank pages for you to write prayers to the Lord in light of who God is. We have that one in the Resource Center, too. And then finally, it's not just on the attributes of God, but if you've never read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, the middle section of this book is all about the attributes of God, but the beginning end is all the gospel. And this goes back to what we talked about. The point of the attributes of God is not for us to sit in coffee shops and just have philosophical discussions. The point is so we know God for who he really is. And this is a classic that God has used in his grace to help so many people understand what it means to walk with God and know God. So that is just 
a few, but if you're looking for some good light reading for Christmas break, those are some great resources, and we keep most of those, at least the attributes of God, the pink one, the Jones one, the Grudem one, and the Jensen one, and the Packer one. All those are in the resource center. I don't think the Tozer one's out there, but they're available just about anywhere you look. So those are just a few suggestions for you if you want some extra reading to go deeper on this. We only looked at 15 attributes of God this semester. There's obviously more we could talk about. There's ones we didn't even get to. There's so much you could go on this topic. There's no ending to the depth of the riches of who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. And these will take you deeper if you want to go into that. So in just a minute, we're going to break up and go to our small groups for one last time tonight. I'm not going to read over the questions here, but you can look at them as you get to your small groups. A lot of the questions deal with why do we forget the glory of God? How do we grow in thinking about it? How is this truth comforting us? How does this shape our daily lives? And so I hope you'll think through some of that. And then one thing that I'd love for you to think about is of all the attributes we've studied this semester, which one stretched you the most? Which one has pushed you the most? So I'd love for you to kind of chew on that and think about that and whether or not you have time to talk in your groups tonight, but I'd love for you to think through of all the attributes we've looked at, which one has most challenged you, stretched you, or surprised you as we've studied that. So for one last time, we're going to divide up. uh, The couples are going to go to room one, ladies room two. Guys, you'll be with me in room four. So I look forward to going deeper and thinking about God's glory with you tonight. So see you in the gym building in just a minute.